Let me have you turn to Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter 13. The next to the last installment in this series. This is the word of the Lord. On that day, there shall be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And also, I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, these wounds I received in the house of my friends. Awake, O shepherd, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Let's pray. Lord, would you bless the preaching of your word this morning? Uh, enable Brad to speak clearly and open it up. And give us open hearts to receive it. You're good. You make yourself known. Give us the grace to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you from Zechariah 13 today. And by the way, if you're looking for Zechariah, since we're almost the end of it, second to last book in the Old Testament. Um, I know that one gets tucked away in there sometimes. Zechariah 13 is where we're at today. I, I really don't know what happened to my stick um, from last week. I can only assume that Stacy tucked it away somewhere and is saving it for chapter 14 here in two weeks. Um, no, getting into the text today. The rescue and refining of, of, of God's people. Uh, just to start, I, I'd like for us to, it's, it's good to kind of keep things in perspective because you go through this week after week and sometimes you kind of lose sight of the big picture of it. And to keep it in perspective a little bit, just a, a little bit of context, a little bit of overview, chapters 1 through 8 were primarily focused on the contemporary situations, God's word to the contemporary situation they found themselves in. It was through a series of visions that that came about. Chapters 9 through 11 really point toward the first coming of Jesus, Jesus uh, when he comes and prof uh, prophesying towards that. And then chapters 12 through 14 that we started last week point toward the day of the Lord and the second coming of Christ and the kind of some of the events that are going to surround it. And I, I think though in the book of Zechariah, chapter 8 kind of stands out as a, as a key 
focal chapter, showing kind of the big picture of what God is doing with His people. Now, we know Zechariah, and we know this because of some, some pointers in the text, and also in Haggai, which is a contemporary of Zechariah. It's right around 520 B.C., so 520 years before Christ. They've returned from captivity, and they're rebuilding Jerusalem, and most importantly, they're rebuilding the temple. And they're being encouraged, being challenged, being charged to, to not fear, to be strong, and to complete the work that God has called them to do. God is showing them, and He already has shown them, that I haven't, I haven't forsaken you. Yes, you forsook me. Yes, there was captivity. There was, there, was, there, was, there was judgment in that sense. But ultimately, that was to restore you and bring you back. I have not abandoned you forever. I'm still working. I'm still with you. And so through a series of, of miraculous circumstances, God has brought them back. And now they're rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple. And in chapter nine, you have or chapter eight, you have verses like nine that says, "Thus says the Lord of hosts: Let your hands be strong, you who in the days, uh, in these days, have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day of the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts when it was laid, that the temple might be rebuilt." You have prophets like Zechariah, you have Zerubbabel leading the people. You have these things, listen, be strong, God has given us a work to do, we need to complete it because He is establishing Himself once more as, as, as Lord here in, in Israel. And then verses 13 through 15 say, um, as you have been a byword of cussing among, or cursing, sorry, it's interesting, You've been a byword of cursing, I don't know what the difference is, among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I, has, as I purposed to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, you rebelled against me, God said, and there was a price to pay for that, but ultimately even that had a purpose. I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts. So again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. So over and over, fear not. I've got a plan. I've got a purpose. It's for your good. Be strong. Be courageous in that sense. And fear not. Move forward. Trust me. God is saying, yes, I turned my hand against you when you were in your rebellion and in your idolatry, but I will not forsake you forever. They saw that coming to pass in their day. And ultimately, as we get into chapters 12 through 14, as starting last week, we see that that's coming again for this people of Israel. God's not going to forsake them forever. Why? Is it because they're so easy to love? Nope, <laughs> not at all but because God is faithful to His promise. And even when God brings nations against His people and they're defeated and they're taken captive, it is ultimately to bring about repentance and restore restoration to them. We see God, He made a promise. He's faithful to that promise. He's bringing it about. So there is an incredible promise for the people of God. It's an incredible promise for the people of God. We saw it last week. And God will again... God will again, in a great and final way, He's going to deliver Israel. That was what last week was about, and this week is too. It's still about on that day. We're talking about the day of the Lord 
in the end, the second coming of Christ, there's going to be a great deliverance. And last week we heard about the military deliverance, but also ultimately the spiritual deliverance where they'll turn to their Messiah and God will do an incredible work there. He will reveal himself and they'll see, they'll see their sin. There's going to be a great military deliverance we read about. And then they're going to look on him whom they have pierced, it said. And they're going to see, and they're going to see that rejection of Jesus, and they're going to see that this is their God. And they'll turn and they'll believe. But before that, they're going to first see it, it says, and there's going to be this incredible, several verses that talked about it in chapter 12, of their mourning and their weeping and their grieving over their sin. They're going to realize what we, they've done, and there's going to be anguish. And then we pick up in our, our verse today. Where we start, we ended last week. On that day there will, shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. They'll see their sin for what it is. There's no excuses. There's mourning. There's grieving over that sin. And then they're going to see the grace of Christ and they're going to embrace Him. It's a beautiful picture. It's how they will be saved. It's how anybody who's ever saved is saved. We see the reality of our sin. We see what it means before God who's a holy God. There's a brokenness for that sin. You don't just say, hey, I want Jesus because I, I want something better. You realize, I need Jesus because I desperately need a Savior. I'm not okay. I am not okay. I need a Savior. Christ came. He died for me. You see it. You see who He is and you see what He's done. And you say, I, I don't want anything else. I want Him. I need Him. And there's a fountain open. You see it. There's an incredible promise for the people of God. That fountain shall be open and it will be to cleanse them of their sin and their uncleanness. There's hope and there is forgiveness. And this promise, this promise today is yours. As we're reading about Zechariah, this prophecy is given to Israel, right? And it's about, here's what God is going to do. But you say, well, that's Israel. What about us? This promise is yours. Why do I say that? How do I, how do I say that? He said, it's written for Israel. What God's going to do for them, yes. In some of the specifics, yes. But the promises are yours and mine all the same. It's interesting, you go all the way back to chapter 2 in Zechariah, and he says, listen, this work of God is not ultimately just for the people of Israel. It says in verse two, or chapter 2, 11, it says, And many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day, and shall be my people. Who's going to be the people of God? Even from among the nations, those who join themselves to the Lord. Ephesians 3, 6 says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What is this great mystery? It's that the Gentiles become part of the people of God. When we're talking about the people of God, it's those of faith. Jews and Gentiles. We become part of this thing. Galatians 3, 7, know then, so beginning of 7, know then that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. Who's the son of Abraham? Those who are of faith. In the scripture, 
foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We're part of it. And then Romans chapter 11, if you I guess probably the, the clearest picture of how all this works together, it speaks of the, the Gentiles who believe being grafted in. Being grafted in, you say, well, what in the world does that mean? When I was uh, in college, we had a we kind of had a neighboring farm that was a big nursery operation and uh, where I lived, and I worked a little bit for them on the side and would go, and, and one of the things that we would do is, is sitting there, this is like over the Christmas holidays, what I'd, I would go do, we would, we would take all of these grafts, these little, they look like little twigs about this long, little shoots, little grafts, and they were a nursery, and they would send these all over the world, literally. They were shipped out all over the world, and we would take them, and we would, we would make them about the right size and cut them and everything and bundle them up and all to be shipped out because they're grafts. You take these, these, these shoots, and they can be grafted into the root, and they can cause it to produce greater fruit. It can, it can help it to overcome diseases that may be native to one but not the other. It's all kinds of incredible things that can be done through that. You take this, this, this one shoot and you graft it in with the root and it becomes one and has greater, honestly, benefits than it would by itself. We're grafted in by faith. We're grafted in by faith. We are now part of the people of God. We become part of the vine that is the people of God. It is not that Israel no longer matters. We saw that last week. Israel absolutely does, and God still has a plan for ethnic Israel. I, I believe that. I think it's hard to get around in the text. It's there. But that we are fellow heirs and partakers of the promise. So when we read these promises, they're ours. Okay, that, That's my point. There are promises as well. And the promise is entirely dependent on the purposes of God. One of the things that you clearly see throughout, we saw it last week, and it's the same through our text. I will, I will, I will. This is what God is doing. How is this, all this going to happen? How is it going to come about? It's going to happen because God is doing it. Who's orchestrating it all? Who's bringing it about? God is. Now what have they done? They've wandered into idolatry and rebellion. They're at best complacent and more often outright rebellious towards God. Who's going to fix it? Who's going to make that right? Who's going to restore the relationship? Are they going to do it? Are they going to wake up one day and say, okay, I want to be back right with God now? Are they going to come running back on their own? No. Who's going to make it right? What do we see in the passage? We see, I will, I will, I will, says the Lord of hosts. Over and over again. God is going to do it or it isn't going to happen. God loves His people enough. Listen to this. I think this is important and we see it in the day. God loves His people enough that He will hurt them if that's what it takes to restore them. It's called discipline. He'll hurt them if that's what it takes to restore them. It's a discipline of God. I got it a lot growing up. I don't know about you, I know y'all can't believe that. You know, the Bible says, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. My parents definitely did not hate me growing up. They loved me a lot. 
Why? Because if they left me to myself, it would be destructive to me and it would wreck the relationship. If I was left to myself, it would be destructive. It would hurt and it would destroy the relationship. My dad used to give me that line. Y'all know the line, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. Really? Um, Do you realize what happened here, though? God didn't just say, hey, yeah, I'm disciplining you. He said, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. I'm coming, and I'm giving my life for you to restore you and to bring you back. That's the promise. He took the full measure of the punishment for us. I am so grateful that these promises, the promises of God are entirely dependent on God and not on me. In verse 1, we see God open a fountain up for cleansing and forgiveness. And what happens? What happens when that happens? So God God is bringing forgiveness. He's bringing cleansing to the people of Israel. And this is looking forward to what He's going to do among them in the last day. He's going to bring this, 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 this military deliverance. We saw that. But also this spiritual deliverance. And when that happens, what follows? Because it's really interesting to see. And this is, this is the pattern for our lives. Spiritual cleansing leads to practical cleansing. That's what we see in the text. There's a spiritual cleansing, and now what's going to happen following that? There's a practical cleansing as well in verses 2 through 6. He says, on that day, on that day, God is going to do incredible work. He's going to bring Israel to Christ, and there will be forgiveness and a restored relationship. And in that context, there's going to be change. There's going to be change. Verse 2 says, and on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land. And they shall be remembered no more. And also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And then he goes on to describe that second part a little bit more. But he says, what's going to happen on that day? When my people turn back to me, they're forgiven, they're set free. Things are going to actually change. Whatever Jesus touches, He changes there. And things are actually going to change. What is going to change? It's going to happen... It's going to happen there. First of all, idolatry is going to be gone. But there, there's, how do, well, let me back up for a second. When, when, when things are going to change, he said things are going to change. There's two ways that that change can come about. We're talking about practical, behavioral change. There's two ways that that can come about. The first way is through behavioral modification. I'm going to get it right. I'm going to get it better. I'm going to do better. If you talk to people about the Lord and you spend much time, you're going to hear things all the time that people are going to say, hey, I know I need to do better. I know I need to try harder. I know I need to do this. I know I need to do that. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to better myself here. I'm going to make it better. Behavioral modification is one way. Modification is one way that things can change. But it's, it isn't real. It's an illusion. It doesn't last. And it's just our attempt to make ourselves look like something that we're not. We can't change ourselves ultimately and it be of any good and lasting difference so there's behavioral modification but the second way things can change in our lives is through spiritual transformation we change because we are changed god puts his spirit in us 
And as Ezekiel says, causes us to walk in His ways. There's a change fundamentally in who we are. We have the Spirit of God living inside of us. He is leading us. He is guiding us. The things we used to love, now we hate. And the things we used to hate, now we love. And there's this change that takes place that works itself out in our lives. That is spiritual transformation. That is what we are talking about here. Not behavioral modification. Listen, when we say come back to the Lord, we're not saying work out everything in your life. We're saying to come to Jesus and lay it all down and let Him change you. So there's cleansing. We see cleansing in the text here. Cleansing first from idolatry, verse, the first part of verse 2. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they will be remembered no more. I'm going to cut off the idolatry in the land. The names of them, they're not going to be remembered. What was Israel's biggest and most repeated struggle? It's idolatry. Idolatry, worshiping something or someone rather than God. And we do the exact same thing today. We just don't call it that. I would even say that all sin at its heart is idolatry. It's an exchange of the glory of God for something that we want more, more something we desire more. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God said, I am here from you. I am your God, but you want something else. And so you make for yourself something else that you would rather come to for that sustenance, but it doesn't hold water. It never satisfies. Here God says that when He spiritually delivers His people, they will forget about the idols. Why? Because now they'll be satisfied in Him. You also see another cleansing here that it devotes a few verses to. The second part of verse 2 says, though, and also I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. I'm going to remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. You need to put those two together to understand what somebody. He's not talking about just somebody, a preacher that's delivering the good news. He's talking about false prophets. He's talking about the deceivers. Those who, who are coming and leading the people into destruction. Maybe they claim to speak for God, but it's, it's a lie. Or maybe, uh, maybe they do speak for the, the little g gods of this world. Or maybe they're just great prophets for the wisdom of the world that virtually always sets itself up in opposition to God. I don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know how formal it's going to be. I don't know, but they're going to be, instead of following all of the deceptions that are going to be out there that day, they're not going to have an appetite for that anymore because God is going to have changed their hearts. Here God says that He's going to remove all that. Because of the spiritual work that He's going to do in them, there will no longer be an appetite for what these people are selling. In fact, in fact, as it's described in the text, they're not even going to have a place for anyone who's trying to deceive them like this. And there's used some pretty extreme and graphic language to talk about what it's going to be like. Listen, if you're parents and that's your kid, that's this deceiver that's leading people astray, that's, that's a false prophet in that sense, says you're going to be done with them and you're even, it even says pierce them through, strike them down. It's not going to be tolerated among the people of God is the idea. They're not going to have any appetite for it. Parents, not just 
just calling out their kids if he's a false prophet, but striking him down, it says in verse 3 and verse 4, it's going to be so clear to the people of God in that day that those who are false prophets are going to be ashamed and try to hide themselves. Those that fit that category, God's going to do a work among His people so much that those who are the false prophets are going to be like, hiding. And they're going to say, I'm just a farmer. If you read in the text, they're going to say, I'm a worker of the soul. I'm just a farmer. I'm not really a prophet. Because there's going to be shame. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision. When he prophesies, by the way, it doesn't say he's going to stop. He's just going to go and hide. And he will not put on a hairy cloak. That's a picture of like Elijah Ward. You also saw the same thing with John the Baptist when he came, right? There's that, 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 that dress of the, the prophet. He's going to hide it. He's going to be low-key because he's ashamed and he's afraid. But he will say, I'm no prophet. I am a worker of the soul. I'm a farmer. For a man sold me in my youth. And if anyone asks, what are these wounds on your back? By the way, the wounds on the back, you think about the prophets of Baal who would cut themselves. He will say, these wounds I received in the house of my friends. It was just, it was just kind of we got together and we had a little fight going on. And it's nothing. You're going to try to hide who they are. Why? Because God is doing such a great work of the gospel and His people that they won't have ears to hear their lies anymore. And they really won't even have a lot of tolerance for it. They'll be exposed as the frauds that they are. Again, this is something that God is doing and it leads to the next point. How is it that Israel and us are, will be cleansed and restored? How is it going to happen? And it's almost like here in the text... It, it, it doesn't necessarily fall on the line. It kind of steps back again and reminds us of exactly how that's going to happen in the text. Um, and it's this. Christ's sacrifice was, was God's choice. There's going to be a sacrifice. That sacrifice is Christ, and it is of God's choice. Look at verse 7. God just said what He's going to do among the people. He's going to cleanse them. And there's going to be a practical cleansing too. And then He steps back and reminds us. Verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. What is that all about? Who is the, the shepherd that God is calling to be struck down? Awake, O sword, and strike the shepherd against the shepherd. Who is it? It's clearly Christ. It's from chapter 12. It's me whom you have pierced. In Matthew, Mark, and John, Jesus quotes the second half of this verse in reference to himself. Who sent Jesus to the cross? Who was it that sent Jesus to the cross? Was it the Jews? They had a part. Was it the Romans? They had a part in actually carrying it out. Was it you and I? Yeah, we had a big part in that as well. Yes, we all share in that guilt. But Jesus went to the cross because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. He gave His only Son. God sent Jesus to the cross. 
we don't, we don't have time to fully break all this. There's a lot here we don't have time to fully break down. But I just want you to see that God did everything. God did everything for Israel's ultimate salvation and for ours. God did it all. So what happened when the Son of God, when God struck His Son? What happened? Well, God saved the people and then He refined that people and He refined them through hardship. God refines His people and He does so through hardship. And this is like, you say, well, I just want something easy and something comfortable. This is not. It's not. He goes on to say in verse 7, second half of verse strike the shepherd. First of all, God declared for the shepherd to be struck. And then he says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. What in the world is that talking about? There's a lot going on in this half verse and it raises a whole lot of questions. Now, Jesus makes the application from that first half, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. He actually makes application of that in, the three, in three of the Gospels when he talked about what happened among the disciples once he was crucified. And it was what happened among the disciples when he was crucified. So he makes that application, but it doesn't seem like that's the complete fulfillment of this prophecy. What, what was it that happened shortly after the death of Christ. Christ died. He rose again. The church is being formed and founded, centered primarily in Jerusalem. But something happened just, just a, a little bit later, 70 A.D. The Emperor Titus comes in and conquers and destroys Jerusalem. And there was a great scattering. And the Jews from Palestine, including believers, were, were scattered all over that Part of the world. It's called the diaspora, as it's referred to today, referred to often as the diaspora. And it actually served to aid in the spreading of the gospel. It was a time of incredible hardship and incredible persecution and incredible flourishing of the gospel. God used the hard, the difficult time there to do an incredible work where the gospel spread like wildfire across the known world. And part of what spurred that on was the people of God having to scatter. The second half of the verse of this sentence says, I will turn my hand against the little ones. That doesn't sound good. What does that mean? God said, I'm going to turn my hand against the little ones? Does this mean God's going after the kids? That's not the point here, okay? That's not the, the point. It, You've got to understand a little bit more. Some of this is a little bit hard to understand reading it in the English, but the phrase, the King James translates, turn my hand upon, I will turn my hand upon the little ones or the, the weak ones. And the reason why most modern translations say against, because throughout the Old Testament, um, Throughout the Old Testament, every time that phrase, I will turn my hand upon, is used in the Old Testament, it's a reference to chastening or to hardship or even to judgment. That's what that phrase repeatedly refers to throughout the Old Testament. So it's translated in most modern translations, I will turn my hand against. And the word little ones here doesn't really refer so much to children, that's not the point, but to the weak or the lowly ones. 
would be a translation, uh, the most common translation. I think it's a lot easier to understand what, what's being said here, looking back on it, than it maybe would have been to it have been a contemporary in here of this. What are we talking about when we, when we hear this? Well, after the death of Christ, we know there was a great scattering. And part of that scattering was a relatively small and weak group of people, sometimes referred to as the believing remnant. And they were despised and they were persecuted by almost everyone, but through whom God would literally change the world. People might look and say, wow, that's doesn't look so easy to be one of them. No. By the way, if the church, please understand, God has never, ever promised this life was going to be easy. And can we even back up and say, listen, if you're a follower of Christ, the promises are really that it's going to be hard. If you want to really be faithful and follow Christ, you are not choosing the easy road. We're choosing the hard road. And so Jesus in Matthew says, listen, the the way is broad that leads to destruction and the path is easy and many are going to go that way. But it's narrow and the King James says straight, but the word means hard. The path is, is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and few they are that find it. We are not signing up for an easy life. Does that mean the gospel is not worth it? Does that mean absolutely it is? I'm saved from my sin. I'm given hope. I'm given incredible eternal life with Him. And I've got Him living with me, walking with me through this right now. I've got incredible hope. But please don't come thinking, I want Jesus so that I can have the easiest possible life right now. That is not the gospel. God refines His people through hardship there's a great scattering of the people but God works through that to do incredible things even in the suffering and the persecution you go you go you go to places like Revelation chapter 2 and 3 where you have the seven churches there and there's a one or two of them that look like man they're blowing and going and things are easy and things are great and God rebukes them you got a couple little churches there too that it describes in the text as weak and poor, but faithful. And God's Jesus says, yeah, you hang on. It's going to be worth it in the end. It's not the easy life. It's not. After the death of Christ, there was a great scattering. God used that to change the world. But it was not easy for the church. It's never been easy for the church. It's never going to be easy for the church until Christ comes. And it's all made right. Verse 8 says, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. So again, that raises a lot of questions. Zechariah brings up a lot of questions. Okay, We know that going through it. Who are the two-thirds and who are the one-third? Well, it doesn't tell us this is this people and this is that people. So we don't know exactly. There's a lot of speculation, a lot of different ideas. It can be taken a few different ways. The two-thirds, some are say the two-thirds are, are the martyrs and the one-third of those who will remain but still endure hardship and persecution. So he's talking specifically about the people of God here. He's talking specifically about those who are of faith, the church, Jews and Gentiles, and two-thirds. In other words, the majority, there's going to be many that are going to be killed, but one-third is going to endure, and they're going to be refined through hardship and trial. 
Um, that's one way um, you might be able to take it. There was certainly tremendous, tremendous uh, martyrdom and, and persecution. I don't know about that. The, the other is that two-thirds are the majority of the Jews who reject Christ, and the one-third re- represents the believing remnant. Which is interesting, if you, always, if you go back to Romans chapter 11, when it's talking about God's plans among Israel, among the Jews there, it talks about how God has always preserved what it calls an elect remnant. There was always, it's not the majority until the last day when He does that great work, but there was an elect remnant that were preserved. Maybe it refers to that. Here's the reality, we don't fully know, but regardless of who the two-thirds are, we do know that those, that one-third, the believing remnant, whether that's Jews, Gentiles, however that works itself out, is going to have a tough lot. It's not going to have a bunch of ease as they, as they follow. First part of 19, 9a talks about this one-third. What's going to happen with this one-third? Look at the first part of 9. And I will put this third into the fire. Sounds good, doesn't it? This fire is not like, when you think of this fire, we're not talking about hell. We're not talking about judgment. Listen to what he says. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. That's what I'm going to do. This is the story. This is the story. Regardless how you take it, this is a restore of the believing remnant, whether Jew or Gentile. John 16, 2 now, John 15 talks about these incredible promises. You're, I'm the vine, you're the branches. I'm here with you. Verse chapter 16, though, says, right after these, telling these promises, Jesus says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you is going to think he's offering service to God. In other words, this is, there's hardship coming. There's persecution coming. There's suffering coming. But there is purpose in this suffering. This passage looks a whole lot like 1 Peter 1.6. And here Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though tested by fire, may result, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. What's he saying? He's like, just like gold refined, just like this text in Zechariah says, you're going to be put through the fire? But hang on. It's going to show the genuineness of your faith and, and it's not going to perish like these other things that burn out these impurities, but it's going to result to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, there's a purpose here. It's going to be worth it. And I just want you to know that, that God throughout history has done the greatest works among His people in the hardest times. Tertullian said, one of the early church fathers, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. How did God do such an incredible work among His people in His church? It wasn't through easy times. It was through hardship. By the way, when the hardship comes, you really get to see what's real and what's not. It exposes and reveals what is true and what's not. And things get really focused and really into perspective. God has done more in His church for our good and for His glory through persecution and hardship than He ever has through ease and prosperity. 
So what's the conclusion of all this? How does this all wrap up? I think it's beautiful. I think it's absolutely beautiful. And I'm just going to give you what those last two blanks are. and It may not make any sense in the world, but it's beautiful. I want to explain why. Lo ami becomes ami. Lo ami becomes ami. You're saying, say what? What are you talking about? Second part of verse 9. They will call upon my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. Points back to Isaiah or Hosea. Not Isaiah, Hosea. In Hosea, the, the people of Israel, they were in unbelief and in rebellion. And God calls Hosea to illustrate the point by telling him to go marry a prostitute. You got an unfaithful people, same story over and over and over. God says, listen, I'm going I'm I'm to paint this picture for you. Hosea, my prophet, I want you to go out and marry a prostitute. Literally, it says in the text, a wife of whoredom. Go marry her. Hosea does that, and they have a son. And God tells them to name him Jezreel. Say, what's that? Well, it represents defeat for the people of God. The valley of Jezreel, they suffered a great defeat. Represents defeat. Then they have a daughter. And God tells Hosea to name her Lo-Rohamah. What does that mean? No mercy. Lo means no or not. No mercy. That's what it means. You're going to have a daughter now, and you're going to name him No, no Mercy. Great name. Then they have another son. And God tells Hosea, He says, this, 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 this other son, name him Lo-Ami. What is Lo-Ami? It is not my people. You name that son, not my people. We've seen a lot of babies born, born lately. I love biblical names, but not these. Not my people. God is represented as the faithful husband living with an unfaithful wife who is the people of Israel. That's the picture. You got a faithful husband, and he's living with an unfaithful wife. Literally, a wife of whoredom, which represents Israel. And in the story, guess what this unfaithful wife is going to do? She's going to run away. I'm out of here. I'm gone. She's going to run away to try to go back to her old self and her old life again. What's God going to do? Represented in Hosea. What's Hosea going to do? He's going to go get her. And He's going to bring her back and restore her. He's not going to leave her to herself. He's going to get her and bring her back home. In Hosea chapter 1, right after telling him to name his son, not my people, Lo-Ami, he says this. Literally right after he says, you name him Lo-Ami because this is, this is what you're doing. You're running away from me. But I'm going to come back and get you. Listen to what he says. This is right after that. He says, Call his name, or picking up where he actually says this, call his name Loami, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Listen to this. Yet, 
Yet the number of the children of Israel will be like the sands of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And listen to this. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. God's saying, I'm not giving up on you. I'm coming to get you. Lo, I me, not my people, will become a me, my people. Because I'm going to go get them, God says. Lo, I me, will become a me. It says, they will call upon the name of the Lord and he will answer them. Do you see who you are? Do you see your sin? Do you see who God is and do you see what he's done? I ask you today, are you lo, I me, or are you? On me. I pray like God is going to do among Israel in the last day. He is doing in the church now. See your sin. See your desperate need for a Savior. What it says here, call on Him and He will answer. There is salvation for you in Christ. Do you realize how desperately you need a Savior? And do you realize that He is that Savior you desperately need? Cling to Him by faith. Let's pray. Lord, thank You. God, thank You for letting us just see an incredible work of power, of grace, of forgiveness, of difficulty and trial, but ultimate triumph, Lord. I thank You that we can just open these texts, God, and we can see You doing a master work, God, with a people that so often don't want anything to do with You, but yet, God, You are faithful to Your promises, God. And even as the church, Lord, those who know You and are called by Your name, God, so often we, 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 we run, we wonder. God, we, we look elsewhere for satisfaction and hope and life, Lord. I thank you so much for your faithfulness, God. And I pray for that work of your spirit amongst us, Lord, to draw us back. Lord, help us to not try to hewn for ourselves broken cisterns that can never hold water, but to trust in the source of living water, to come and drink. And God, help us as your church, not to, Lord, not to believe this myth that just it's all about ease and it's all about security and safety lord but to to see and understand and embrace lord that there's something more there's something greater there's something bigger it's your glory and your hope and god you have overcome the world in this world you have tribulation but take art i've overcome the world lord help us to embrace it our hope in you god and i pray I pray for the, the Loa Ami in this room. I pray that they'll become your people. God, just through your spirit, do that work where you open their eyes to their desperate place, God, and their, their sin and the magnitude of what that means, and then let them see the beauty of your grace and what you accomplished for them on the cross. Open their eyes to see that beautiful work, God, and I pray they'll become on me. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.